Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a companion piece to our E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, Pseudomonas Originosa Eradication. Our guest today is that issue's author, Dr. Margaret Rosenfeld from the University of Washington School of Medicine. This activity has been developed for pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies and expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the Volume 4, Issue 6 podcast link. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to discuss the rationale for early Pseudomonas aeruginosa eradication, identify the inhaled and oral antibiotics that have been compared in clinical trials for early Pseudomonas eradication, and describe the potential adverse effects of early Pseudomonas eradication therapy. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the phone, we have with us Dr. Margaret Rosenfeld, Associate Director of the Center for Clinical and Translational Research at Seattle Children's Hospital and Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Rosenfeld has indicated that she has received grants and or research support from Vertex and has served as a consultant for Genentech. She has also indicated that there will be no reference to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in her presentation today. Dr. Rosenfeld, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed new research that addresses a situation many cystic fibrosis clinicians encounter. A patient presents with a new isolation of Pseudomonas aeruginosa from a respiratory culture, and the clinician needs to know what's the safest and most effective action to take. The findings from the clinical trials you reviewed provided a lot of important new information about early eradication therapies, and what I'd like to do today is discuss how some of that new knowledge can be translated into clinical practice. Uh, So if you would, Dr. Rosenfeld, start us out by describing a patient scenario. A two-year-old with cystic fibrosis has Pseudomonas aeruginosa, isolated from a routine throat swab for the first time. Parents report no change in cough or activity level. You recommend treating with a month of inhaled tobramycin, but parents are skeptical and would like to further discuss the benefits and risks of this approach. Okay, a two-year-old patient, first time she shows a Pseudomonas infection. What's the rationale for treating new cases like this with antibiotics? Well, evidence over the last one to two decades has really led to consensus pretty much around the world that treatment of early Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection with antibiotics to try to delay or prevent chronic Pseudomonas infection is really critical to improving the long-term outcomes of RCF patients. First of all, Chronic pseudomonas infection has clearly been associated with poor outcomes in terms of survival, lung function, and other markers of morbidity. And that's been seen in quite a few studies around the world. So what we really want to do is to delay or prevent chronic pseudomonas infection. Because once the infection is chronic, it's virtually impossible to eradicate. So we really see a window of opportunity to treat the early stages of infection when the pseudomonas is typically very amenable to eradication therapy. 
And there are several reasons for this. First of all, it's present at a really low density as opposed to the unbelievably high concentrations that are seen later on in chronic infection. And second of all, it tends to be very antibiotic sensitive, so easy to eradicate. So there have been long-term studies, albeit not controlled studies, that have come out of particularly the Copenhagen Clinic that have shown much improved outcomes when there has been adoption of a standardized early eradication protocol. So now really all the guidelines from the UK CF Trust, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, a European consensus group, all strongly recommend treatment of early pseudomonas infection with antibiotics. So really the only question that remains is which antibiotic regimen is most effective? And that was discussed in great detail in the newsletter. In the patient you presented, now the parents are probably going to ask you, what's the likelihood that eradication therapy is going to be successful in their child? I think you could really reassure these parents that the likelihood of success is quite high. In pretty much all of the published studies, 80 to 90% of patients who had pseudomonas isolated from a throat swab have negative cultures after treatment with a month of inhaled tobramycin. So in general, if you're judging eradication as negative upper airway culture from a throat swab, then treatment with inhaled tobramycin is quite, quite effective. Pseudomonas aeruginosa does tend to recur over a period of time, and that may be months or years depending on the individual patient. In one study, the median time to recurrence after initial eradication was five months, but that's very much at the lower end of the range in the different studies. For example, in the elite trial discussed in the newsletter, the median time for recurrence after either 28 or 56 days of inhaled tobramycin was 26 months. And in my clinical experience, I would say that's probably more what we see as well. And then it would be important to explain to the parents that this approach would be used when Pseudomonas aeruginosa is isolated for a second time as well. So in general, each time Pseudomonas is isolated from respiratory culture, then there's an attempt to eradicate it with anti-pseudomonal antibiotics. Now, let me get hypothetical here. Let's say that the parents are very resistant to initiating treatment, and, and together you reach the decision not to treat to eradicate this initial Pseudomonas infection. What outcome could be expected? So I think it's important to discuss what would happen if the decision is made not to treat and to be very honest about this. You know, it is hard to be sure in the short term because it's been clearly shown in studies from our group and others that in the era prior to automatically treating Pseudomonas aeruginosa when it's first isolated, that it can clear spontaneously. And in general, early Pseudomonas infection tends to be rather intermittent in nature. However, over time, the infection is definitely likely to become chronic, and that's really what we're trying to avoid. And it's been shown clearly from quite a number of centers that early eradication regimens delay or even prevent this chronic infection. A hypothetical question now from a different angle. Uh, Let's say these parents are information savvy. They've gone on the internet, maybe they've read a blog, and they tell you they're skeptical that a throat swab doesn't really represent the true location of the pseudomonas infection. How would you respond? I would respond that the parents have every reason to be skeptical here. A throat swab may not be representative of what's actually going on in the lower airway. And so just because we're looking at Pseudomonas aeruginosa isolated from a throat swab or even eradication of that Pseudomonas aeruginosa from a throat swab, it's hard to know how effective the treatment has been in the lower airway, where, of course, the structural airway damage that we're trying to avoid could occur. We did a study, and others have done similar studies, that directly compared the results of oropharyngeal cultures or throat swabs 
to the results of cultures obtained from the lower airway through bronchoalveolar lavage at the same time. And all these studies have shown that throat swabs have a pretty high negative predictive value but a low positive predictive value for the infection that's really going on in the lower airway. So to put that in plain English, if Pseudomonas aeruginosa is not isolated from a throat swab, it's unlikely to be present in the lower airway. But if it is isolated from a throat swab, it's a little bit of a crapshoot as to whether it's really in the lower airway. However, we are concerned whenever we isolate Pseudomonas aeruginosa, even from a throat swab, that that's probably something we want to take seriously because lower airway infection probably does come from the upper airway. And so our thought is that if we can isolate it from the upper airway, we may prevent transmission to the lower airway. Bronchoavialar lavage. Would you consider that to confirm pseudomonas in the lower airway? Many centers, particularly in Australia and Europe, will really only rely on bronchoalveolar lavage to document pseudomonas aeruginosa infection. And there's a lot of merit to that. One just has to think about the risk-benefit ratio of doing a bronchoalveolar lavage procedure, and that could certainly be discussed with these parents. In general, there seems to be a move towards thinking that isolation of pseudomonas aeruginosa from the upper airway in and of itself is a bad thing, as it most likely does lead to increased risk of lower airway infection, though that statement is difficult to prove. So at least in the United States, there's more and more of a reliance on upper airway cultures and decision to treat based on those cultures alone. Final question on this patient, and it's one I'm sure the parents are going to ask. What are the risks that might be associated with treatment with a month of inhaled tobramycin? So probably the biggest risk, in all honesty, is the burden of care associated with the treatment. The treatment takes 15 to 30 minutes twice a day, and then there's also the time needed to clean the nebulizer and to get the child settled and so forth. In addition, as with any inhaled agent, there's a slight risk of a hoarse voice, and any inhaled medication can cause cough, though that's not very common. Importantly, there are significant risks associated with long-term or even short-term use of intravenous tobramycin and other aminoglycosides, but when tobramycin is delivered via the inhaled route, the absorption into the system is very low, so the attendant risks of ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity are also very low. Lastly, there is a risk of emergence of new organisms such as Stenotrophomonas multifilia as was discussed in the newsletter, but the clinical significance of isolation of these new organisms is entirely unclear at this point. So I think there are many parents that are skeptical about treating with medications in a patient who appears so healthy from the outside, and the key thing I think to convey to this family is that we really are trying to prevent the onset of chronic pseudomonas infection, and that Treatment with inhaled tobramycin or other anti-pseudomonal antibiotics, though to be sure time-consuming, is highly effective and with minimal risk. Uh, Thank you for that first case in discussion, Dr. Rosenfeld. Let me ask you now to bring us another patient. A four-year-old with cystic fibrosis has pseudomonas aeruginosa isolated from a routine throat swab. She previously had pseudomonas aeruginosa isolated from a throat swab one year ago, which was successfully treated with a month of inhaled tobramycin. So, a year ago, a throat swab revealed pseudomonas, it was eradicated, and now a throat swab indicates she has pseudomonas again. The most appropriate treatment options in this case. What do the published clinical trials tell us? Options studied in published studies, 
and these are all discussed in the newsletter, have included inhaled tobramycin for 28 or 56 days, adding oral ciprofloxacin to inhaled tobramycin, inhaled colistin with oral ciprofloxacin for one month or three months, and then lastly, looking at a much more intensive regimen over a prolonged period of time in which tobramycin is administered one out of every three months regardless of the status of the uh, culture during that time period versus administration of tobramycin only at times during which Pseudomonas is isolated from a respiratory culture over an 18-month period. Interestingly, although all these regimens were highly effective, none of the studies showed clear superiority of one regimen over another. So I would say they're probably all relatively equally effective. And in that case, it's probably worth thinking about using the simplest regimen with the least potential associated costs, burden of care, and toxicity, which would probably, in my opinion, be inhaled tobramycin therapy alone and just for 28 days. I should also point out that all of these studies included patients who were having recurrent isolation of pseudomonas as discussed in this case, not only patients who had the very first lifetime occurrence of pseudomonas. And in most of these studies, the success rate in terms of eradication were not significantly different between individuals who were having first ever isolation of pseudomonas versus those who were having pseudomonas isolated for the second time or an additional time. So in summary, I would say that probably the therapy with the most rationale in this individual patient would be one month of inhaled tobramycin, potentially then following up with a throat culture about a week after completing the therapy and if still positive, considering treating with an additional month of inhaled tobramycin. In this four-year-old patient, would you expect that adding oral ciprofloxacin to the inhaled tobramycin would improve the likelihood of successful eradication? So based on the EPIC trial discussed in the newsletter, there's no evidence to suggest that adding oral ciprofloxacin would improve outcomes above and beyond those achieved by inhaled tobramycin alone. In addition, the ELITE trial, also discussed in the newsletter, had really very high eradications using just inhaled tobramycin therapy without any adjunctive antibiotics. So no, I don't believe so. And treating with inhaled tobramycin for 28 days or 56 days, do you think the longer regimen is likely to improve the chances of successful eradication? So this question was specifically addressed by the ELITE trial discussed in the newsletter in which participants were randomized to receive either 28 or 56 days of inhaled tobramycin at early isolation of Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And that study showed very high eradication rates with either 28 or 56 days and no superiority of 56 days over 28 days. So I don't think that there's any a priori benefit of treating for 56 days over treating solely for 28 days. However, our clinical practice is often to treat for 28 days then repeat the oropharyngeal culture about a week off of antibiotics. And if the culture is still positive, then treat for an additional 28 days. And that seems to work well. Now, this patient, she's had two pseudomonas infections within a year. Would you consider her to have chronic infection? So, no, I would not consider this patient to have chronic infection at this point. There are varying definitions of chronic infection. The one that's most widely used is the LEADS criteria in which the definition of chronic is that more than half of the cultures obtained in a given year are positive for Pseudomonas, and she does not meet these criteria. And importantly for her, the likelihood of eradication of Pseudomonas at this point is still very high, about the same as the first go-round. So the prognosis is not any worse for her at this point in time. Would you consider treating this patient with a different agent than what was used to treat her first infection? 
So no study to date has addressed the question as to whether recurrent isolation of Pseudomonas aeruginosa should be treated with a different regimen than initial Pseudomonas eradication. So we don't have data to suggest whether, for example, if this patient was initially treated with inhaled tobramycin, a different agent should be used. And I don't know that there's a way to really decide. Perhaps if the time between the initial pseudomonas isolation and the recurrence is short, one might think that the initial eradication was not completely successful and another agent should be chosen. However, if the time between initial isolation and subsequent recurrence is a longer period of time, say over a year, that returning to the initial regimen, say of inhaled tobramycin, would be likely to be effective again. So in this four-year-old with her second pseudomonas infection, what would be your specific treatment recommendations? Well, residing in the United States, I would most likely recommend treating with one month of inhaled tobramycin, then rechecking an oropharyngeal culture about a week after treatment, and treating for a second month if the culture is still positive. Around the world, others might consider using inhaled colistin and oral ciprofloxacin in a similar manner. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Margaret Rosenfeld from the University of Washington School of Medicine in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Margaret Rosenfeld from Seattle Children's Hospital and the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And our topic is Pseudomonas aeruginosa eradication. We've been looking at how some of the new information Dr. Rosenfeld reviewed in her newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. Uh, So to continue, let me ask you to bring us another patient, if you would, please, doctor. A five-year-old has stenotrophomonas multophilia, isolated from a throat swab for the first time. He was treated with a month of inhaled tobramycin four months ago after Pseudomonas aeruginosa was isolated from a throat swab for the first time. Stenotrophomonas. Why do you think this organism is emerging? Uh, Could it be a result of the treatment with the inhaled tobramycin? 
That is a very good question. In the trials that were reviewed in the newsletter, there is some light shed on this question. First of all, in both the EPIC trial and the trial out of Italy run by Tachetti and colleagues, up to 20% of participants had Stenotrophomonas multifilia isolated for the first time from respiratory culture after treatment with inhaled tobramycin or, in fact, other anti-pseudomonal antibiotics. Interestingly, this same phenomenon was not seen in the ELITE trial comparing 28 and 56 days of inhaled tobramycin, also discussed in the newsletter. The PROSMANS trial, which was the last study discussed in the newsletter, didn't look for treatment-emergent pathogens one way or the other. So that particular study doesn't add new insight. So what we're really left with is that there does seem to be a pattern of Stenotrophomonas multifilia being isolated from respiratory cultures after treatment for early pseudomonas infection, but that it's hard to hang your hat on a direct cause-effect relationship. What do we know about the clinical significance of this organism? It's really hard to know what the clinical significance of Stenotrophomonas multifilia is. A number of studies have tried to evaluate this and have not been able to see a clear set of poor outcomes associated with acquisition of Stenotrophomonas multifilia. However, it clearly is more antibiotic resistant than Pseudomonas aeruginosa and so may be more difficult to treat. Should clinicians be treating this pathogen with antibiotics? Well, I would say in the absence of symptoms, there's no data to suggest that we should treat just because Stenotrophomonas multifilia is isolated from a respiratory culture. Doing this could lead to emergence of yet another antibiotic-resistant organism that's even harder to treat. However, if the patient is experiencing a pulmonary exacerbation, and this is the only organism isolated from a respiratory culture, then I definitely would recommend treating it. Let me ask you about respiratory cultures that show infection with MRSA. Could that be due to pseudomonas eradication? That would be very unlikely, as none of the published studies has reported a higher rate of MRSA after pseudomonas eradication therapy, in stark contrast to stenotrophomonas multifilia. But it may be that this patient has been treated with more antibiotics in general as their disease has progressed after pseudomonas isolation, since we know that isolation of pseudomonas is associated with more severe lung disease in general. And so the isolation of MRSA is simply reflective of more intensive antibiotic treatment in general. Thank you for today's cases and discussion, doctor. I'd like to change gears now and ask you to look into the future for us, if you would. What do you see as the next steps in expanding clinical knowledge about early pseudomonas eradication regimens? Well, to be sure, I see that there are quite a few unanswered questions regarding early pseudomonas aeruginosa eradication regimens. And particularly in this era of newborn screening, we have a real opportunity to answer some of these questions. First of all, I think it's important to have a better understanding of how to treat children in whom the initial eradication regimen is not successful. Should we use a different antibiotic? Should we treat for longer? Should we treat with intravenous antibiotics? That question has not yet been answered and is very important to get a better handle on. It's a tough question to answer because the eradication success rates are so high that there aren't very many children at any one center who fail initial eradication regimens. And so this will definitely require multi-center collaboration to answer. I think another important answered question is the role of intravenous antibiotics in early eradication regimens. That's been looked at a little bit by the group at University of North Carolina, but still needs much more definitive evaluation and would be an important question to answer and sort of ties in with the first question because perhaps we'd be most likely to use IV antibiotics in children who have failed initial eradication regimen with inhaled and or oral antibiotics. 
In addition, there are many new inhaled antibiotics that are either available now, such as inhaled ashenam, or coming down the pike. And it will be important to study the role of these other inhaled antibiotics in the treatment of early pseudomonas infection. And then lastly, but very critically, what are the long-term outcomes associated with these eradication regimens? Now that they're becoming much more standard of care, are there long-term safety concerns that we're not aware of yet? And similarly, what are the long-term benefits of this treatment in terms of pseudomonas, lung function, and other efficacy endpoints? So I think that all of these questions will be very important to answer in the future, and certainly there'll be a lot more important clinical trials that will help us to elucidate some of these answers. Uh, Thank you for sharing your thoughts, doctor. To wrap things up, I'd like to summarize what we've discussed today in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, the rationale for early pseudomonas eradication. We discussed that the rationale for early pseudomonas eradication regimens is to avoid chronic pseudomonas infection, which has clearly been associated with worse outcomes and worse survival in our cystic fibrosis patients. In early pseudomonas infection, there's a real window of opportunity to treat because the early pseudomonas isolates are typically present at very low density and are highly antibiotic sensitive. And our second learning objective, identifying the inhaled and oral antibiotics that have been compared in clinical trials for early pseudomonas eradication. So in the second case, we identified the inhaled and oral antibiotics that have been evaluated in published clinical trials that might be used for the treatment of a young child with new isolation of pseudomonas aeruginosa. And we reviewed that those options include inhaled tobramycin, either for 28 days or 56 days, and either with or without oral ciprofloxacin, as well as inhaled colistin and oral ciprofloxacin for one month or three months. Uh, And finally, the potential adverse effects of early pseudomonas eradication therapy. In the third case, we reviewed the emergence of stenotrophomonas multifilia as a potential adverse effect of early pseudomonas aeruginosa eradication treatment regimens. In addition, in the first case, we reviewed the potential risks associated with treatment with a month of inhaled tobramycin, which might include a hoarse voice, cough, and the burden of care associated with the treatment, in addition, of course, to potential emergence of stenotrophomonas multifilia, though the clinical significance of that organism is not at all clear. Dr. Margaret Rosenfeld from Seattle Children's Hospital and the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to participate in the podcast. I've greatly enjoyed our conversation. This podcast is presented in conjunction with E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required.
To register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.